scripture reading this morning is Hebrews 5, verse 11 through 612. You can find that on page 1867 in the Bible in front of you. It will not be on the screen this morning. So if you want to follow along, pull up the Bible in front of you or look in your own Bible. Starting at 511. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptisms, the laying out of hands and the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they, have cruci- they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and produces a crop useful to those whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. The reason the uh, scriptures weren't on the screen this morning is that we had a major computer malfunction uh, in the middle of the 8 o'clock service. We're fortunate that we were able to even have the music on the uh, screen here. And uh, all that we have that we could get up for the scriptures uh, is the Spanish version. And since we're not the La Miel Church, we didn't think that would work. So uh, hopefully we can get that repaired. Also, all of the scriptures that we were going to look at or we are going to look at this morning in the message will not be able to be on the screen behind me. And so uh, uh, we'll just have to listen more carefully as we talk this morning, as we share these things, because you won't have that visual uh, behind us uh, uh, today. Technology is wonderful, isn't it, when it works? (laughs) A long time ago, Winston Churchill, who was the leader of England during World War II, described the uh, wartime actions of Russia during the Second World War like this. He said they were a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. (laughs) In other words, they were awfully hard to figure them out. And you know, the same could be said this morning in these verses of Scripture that we're looking at today from Hebrews chapter 6. They are awfully hard to figure out. This morning we continue this series of messages from the book of Hebrews that we've titled, It's All About Jesus. And, and we come to this warning passage in Hebrews chapter 6. And there's a parallel passage to this in Hebrews chapter 10. And these are difficult texts to truly interpret and understand. 
In fact, listen to what some of the Bible commentators have said about these verses in the commentaries that they've written on the book of Hebrews. Ray Stedman said, this is the naughtiest problem passage in Hebrews, if not the whole Bible. A passage which has been a battleground for ages. Other commentators have said the difficulty of interpretation cannot be exaggerated. Another one said the number and variety of explanations is bewildering. George Guthrie said it's no exaggeration to designate the passage we now consider as one of the most controversial in the book of Hebrews. Indeed, one of the most disputed in the entire New Testament. And I found what one commentator said to be both humorous and sad when they said this is known to be one of the most difficult chapters in the whole canon of Scripture. It has suffered in interpretation more at the hands of its friends than at the hands of its enemies. Folks, uh, the simple fact is that excellent, careful, accurate, highly competent Bible teachers stand at opposite ends of the interpretation of Hebrews chapter 6. In fact, for centuries, for centuries, theologians have debated the meaning of this passage. And, And so this morning, my hope is that we can approach this text with an open heart, with an open mind, and see what it is, discern what it is that God is telling us in this warning. Now, at the end of chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews exhorts us as God's people to grow up. That's what he says. He wants us to grow up. He he wants us, he says, to to move beyond the stage of spiritual infancy, of spiritual adolescence, and grow into spiritual maturity. And the way he says to do that, as he talks about at the end of chapter 5, are through some things that we've listed there in the message notes called the true marks of spiritual maturity. And in verse 14, he wraps up chapter 5 by saying that you and I can grow from spiritual infancy and adolescence into spiritual maturity through uh, eating good spiritual food, so to speak. In other words, through feeding on the Word of God. And, and not just feeding on God's Word and messages like this on a Sunday morning, but, but going home and during the week, uh, reaching into the plate of God's Word and, and fixing our own meals, so to speak, apart from the teaching that we have here on Sunday. We need to be studying God's Word. And he, and he says we need to be studying not just the, the milk of God's Word, the things that are easy to understand, but also the difficult things to understand, solid meat. And then he goes on and he talks about how not only do we need to be feeding on God's Word to grow spiritually, but but we also need sufficient spiritual exercise. He he would say if he was here today that maturing in the Christian life takes more than just uh, intake of God's Word, but it requires practice and application. We need to be applying God's Word to the living of our daily lives. And then lastly there in verse 14, he says we also need keen discernment. In other words, we need to be able to discern between what is good and and what is evil as we make choices in the living of our life each day for Christ. So what he's saying here is that feeding on God's Word, applying God's Word to our life, discerning between what is good and what is evil as we make choices in our life, if we're doing all of that, we are going to grow into spiritual maturity. And given that, he then says at the beginning of chapter 6 that he wants us, that God wants us to press on to maturity. That God wants us to go beyond just learning about those elementary uh, Christian foundational principles and truths. The the things that we looked at, for example, in the uh, series that we ended just a month ago. 
Press on to maturity, he says. That's the command. That's the goal, if God permits. If God permits. Now, now I don't know about you, but but when I come across that kind of a statement, I say, wow, that's pretty strange. I mean, why in the world wouldn't God permit that? Isn't that what God wants for us? Doesn't he want spiritual maturity for all of us? And yet this passage is suggesting that there are times when God doesn't permit that. When is it that he wouldn't permit it? Well, he goes on in verses 4 through 8 to talk about those times when he wouldn't permit it. And that is when a person has completely fallen away from him in their relationship with him. Listen again to what verses 4 through 8 say. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed. And in the end, it will be burned. What's all this saying to us? Well, I don't know if you realize this, but over the last 500 years or so of church history, there have been two major interpretations of these verses here in Hebrews 6. And one of those interpretations is taught by those uh, who are more Calvinistic in their theology. And what they say is that this is a passage, a warning passage, uh, and, and, and the people being addressed in this are those who profess to be Christians but never really truly come to faith in Christ. They're never truly regenerated. They've never experienced salvation from their sin by God's grace through faith. And so in the end, as they're, 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 they spend eternity in hell. And they'll interpret verses 8 this way, as they say, yes, those people were enlightened, but not really did they ever embrace the truth. Yes, they've tasted of the heavenly gift and the goodness of God's word, but they really didn't digest it. Uh, Yes, they are partakers of the Holy Spirit as they've listened to the truths of God that have come to them through the Spirit, but they've never really been indwelt by God's Spirit. There's a problem with this interpretation, though, and I used to believe this interpretation. This is where I was at years ago. But I found there's a problem with this in that, that, uh, you know, You can't say these people in verses 4 through 5 are really not believers. If you're going to do that, you've got to do a whole lot of interpretation gymnastics with this text. And and let's face it, the author of Hebrews kind of dumps the whole truck on us to show these people are born again believers in Christ. And in fact, the the Greek language that Hebrews was originally written in are, are words that cannot be restricted to such a limited meaning. For example, look at the word enlightened. And it's a word that he uses only one other time in Hebrews, in chapter 10, verse 32. And it's used to talk about those who are followers of Jesus Christ who suffered persecution. The word tasted is the same word that he uses earlier in chapter 2, verse 9. And and it's in reference to Christ having tasted death for everyone when he died for our sin. And, And we'd have quite a dilemma on our hands, wouldn't we, if we said that, well, Christ, it says he died, but he really didn't die. He didn't die fully for our sin. No, the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 2, Christ fully experienced death on our behalf so that he could take on himself the consequences and punishment of our sin. 
And by using the same word a few chapters later, he is saying that those who have fallen away have fully tasted God's heavenly gift. They have received God's gift of free grace and forgiveness of sin. They've received the gift of eternal life through Jesus. And then there's the word that he uses when he talks about people having shared in or partaken of the Holy Spirit. And it's the same word he uses in chapters, chapter 3, verses 1 and 14 to talk about his brothers in Christ who share in the heavenly calling and those who share in Christ. And furthermore, it, it, to say that a person who's unsaved can't come to know Christ, because that's what obviously by their interpretation this, these verses are saying, that it's impossible to come to repentance... It just doesn't jive with the rest of Scripture where God's Word says that all who come to Him in faith and in trust will be forgiven and be saved. So you see, it it can't be that the people the writer of Hebrews is talking about here in chapter 6 are unsaved people. Now the other interpretation, the other major interpretation of this text is is by those who are more uh, what is called Arminian in their theology. And, and they say that, yeah, obviously those who the writer of Hebrews is talking about here are genuine believers. Uh, and, but somewhere along the way, they've renounced their faith in Christ. And so they lose their salvation. And they must, as a result, face punishment of eternity in hell. And, and their position is that a person can be in the family of God and and then by what they do, if they reject God, they walk away from there, out of the family of God, and then they can repent again and come back and confess their sin to Him and, and come back in the family of God. And that position teaches you can be in and out of the family of God. Problem with this position, though, is that look at all the rest of the Scripture. Places like where Jesus says, all who the Father give to Him, none will be taken away from Him. Or, or where it, you know, it says that God is faithful and He'll bring to completion that work uh, Uh, in our lives of his salvation. And not only that, look at what he says here in Hebrews chapter 6. The writer of Hebrews says it's impossible for them to be brought back to repentance. Impossible. And so this passage that's used by people in the Arminian position to show their point is actually in reality the death knell for that position. Because it says that, they, they say those who have fallen away need to come back to God in repentance. But this passage says... God doesn't permit it. And so, you see, while these verses in Hebrews 6 are are verses that have been debated and argued over for hundreds and hundreds of years, and, and, and people argue over whether it's possible for someone to lose their salvation, you know, that's not what these verses are about. Rather, these verses are a serious warning to all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. You know, it helped me a a great deal a a number of years ago as I was wrestling with all of this. Uh, It helped me a great deal uh, then, and and it helped me again uh, as I've continued to wrestle with it and wrestled again with it recently when I found out I was going to, you know, be preaching on this text. Uh, It's helpful to see two terms here that, that the writer of Hebrews uses in these verses, and one is repentance and the other is vegetation or thorns and thistles, the crop of fruit, that kind of thing. And and in doing a careful study of these verses from Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is not talking about repentance to salvation, but rather the writer of Hebrews is talking about repentance of the saved person, of the person who has experienced God's forgiveness of sin. 
And in verses 7 through 8, when he talks about land that produces either a crop that is useful and fruitful or produces thorns and thistles that are burned, the image of what he's talking about here is not that the person is burned, not that the root is burned, but that the crop is burned. He's talking here, in other words, about vegetation that is burned, burned thorns and thistles and, and worthless fruit. In other words, he's talking about the works of people who aren't living for Jesus. They're, they're Christians, they're saved. They, they've come to faith in Christ. But now they've fallen away. And they've gotten caught up in the ways of the world. And they're not living for Jesus Christ. And one day, he says, that person, their, their works, will be judged and burned. That person will still be a follower of Jesus Christ, he says. And, and actually, that person can go far enough into the depths of a carnal lifestyle where God, he says, does not permit them to come back, to, where, where God doesn't permit repentance. And their life and what they do becomes so worthless. In the end, their works are burned. Now again, as we look at the rest of Scripture, that doesn't mean that person is going to end up being cast into the fire of hell. Uh, it, it means that, that their works and all that they've done through life will be worthless for them as they stand before the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul talks about all believers standing one day when time is over. He's not talking about the great white throne of judgment that we saw a few weeks ago when we talked about eternal judgment. Believers won't be, for, be before the great white throne of judgment, but believers will be before the judgment seat of Christ as he speaks of in 2 Corinthians 5. And there he says we will be rewarded for what we've done that is truly for Christ. And he says we will suffer great loss for what we've done that's not of God. And the scripture also teaches us elsewhere that, that those who, who fall away and those who, who walk away from God and their relationship with Him and get caught up in all of the stuff that, that life does to draw us away from God, he says sometimes God even ultimately steps in and administers discipline and temporal judgment here in this life and occasionally even may go to the extreme of removing that person from life here on earth. Capital punishment, so to speak, in the body of Christ. We don't have time this morning to look at all of the passages of Scripture that speak about this. And I've placed just a few of them there in the message notes, some biblical examples of, of this kind of thing. And, and you can go home this week and read them. But, but one that we, we want to just mention briefly here is 1 Corinthians 11, where, where Paul is talking to the Corinthian people who've gotten caught up in all kinds of sinful behavior. And they're not examining themselves and they're not repenting of that sin, that, that daily ongoing repentance that needs to take place in the life of the believer. And he says, that's why many of you are weak and sick. And he says, why some of you have even died. There again, God's snuffing out the life of that person. He says, but if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. And you see what he's saying there in verses 30 through 32 of 1 Corinthians 11 is, is the same thing similarly to Hebrews chapter 6. I mean, when combined with that and combined with the parallel text in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 39, I got to tell you, I read this stuff. These are terrible passages of Scripture. They are warnings that cause us to pause. 
And they should cause us to examine our own life and the way we live and whether we're living for the Lord or for ourselves. And friends, if we find that we aren't living for the Lord, as I have found in my own life at times, and maybe you found in your own life at times as you've, you've wrestled with the world and worldly influences, these warnings hopefully will cause us to repent before we reach the point of no return. Maybe as you hear this this morning, you're going, wow, is this the only place that talks about this? No, there are other places that will verify what Hebrews chapter 6 is teaching, places like Luke chapter 8. Go home and read sometime Luke chapter 8 and that story that Jesus tells about the four different soils that represent four different kinds of lives. And he talks about the seed and the farmer going out and spreading the seed on those soils, the seed representing the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and how those four soils, he said some reject it. But then in verses 14 through 15, he says there's some seed that fell among the thorns. And, and he says those stand for those who hear, those who receive, those who the word of God enters into. But he says as they go on their way through life, they are choked by life's worries and riches and pleasures and they don't mature. In other words, they get caught up in all of the influences of the world and they fall away in their faith. Still Christians, but their, their, their Christian life is choked. And then in verse 15 he says, But the seed on good soil stands for those who hear the word and who with a noble and good heart retain it and by persevering produce a crop. Same thing Hebrews is saying, persevere, keep persevering in the Christian faith. Keep growing, keep maturing so that you don't fall away. And Hebrews 6 says that some people fall away that they reach a level at such a point where, where they can't be brought back. It, it, they just can't bring themselves to repent and God ultimately goes along with their choices just as He did with Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Bible says time and again, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Finally, God says, okay, that's what you want, Pharaoh. And it says, then God hardened his heart. God agrees with Pharaoh. It says, okay, if that's what you want, we'll go for it. But you'll suffer the consequences. And God does the same thing at times in the life of believers who walk away from him. Another passage is John 15. And Jesus says there in the story of the vine and the branches, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And if anyone does not remain in me, he's like the branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. The image here is of the life of the Christian life that stops counting for Jesus Christ and moves into the realm even of shipwreck, so to speak, and produces worthless fruit. And Hebrews says sometimes that kind of a life can reach such a state that, that we just don't turn around. And ultimately that person will be judged. That person will be judged with the fire of judgment at the judgment seat of Christ that we talked about a few moments ago. Jesus says such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Terrible thought. Terrible thought. And that is why the Apostle Paul says what he does in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15, when he talks about 
being careful to build our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And he goes on in verses 12 uh, through 15, and he says, anyone who builds on that foundation may use a variety of materials, gold, silver, jewels, wood, hay, or straw. In other words, use the things that God gives us in life, the riches of our life, and all of the gifts God's given us. Use them, he says, but don't use them for yourself. Use them for the glory of God. And he says, if we don't, on judgment day, if we do or don't, he says, either way, on judgment day, fire is going to reveal what kind of work each builder has done. The fire will show if a person's work has value. If the work survives, that builder receives a reward. Those rewards will receive for eternity. But he says, if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer great loss. Does that mean they'll be in hell? No. He says, the builder will be saved, but like someone barely escaping through the walls of flames. And then later in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, as a result of that, he says, I want you to run the race. Keep persevering. Same thing the writer of Hebrews is saying. He says, don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run so that you may obtain it. In other words, he too is saying, press on to maturity. Keep growing. Slug it out. Hang in there as you and I live life in this world with all of its ungodly influences. Persevere. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. And what Paul has in mind here is the Isthmian Games that took place in his day, which are kind of like the Olympics of our day. And, and, and what Paul is saying here is that in his day, people would compete in those games. And if they won, they would receive a wreath. And they would receive certain benefits, like not being taxed for the rest of their life and, and not having to go to war. But, but he says all of those really are perishable rewards. Those things end when life here on earth ends. But he says, however, we as God's people, we run the race, we persevere, we live the Christian life for that imperishable reward that will come to us one day when we stand at the judgment seat of Christ and he gives us our eternal rewards. And so in verse 26 of 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. He, he's saying I, I practice spiritual disciplines. I do those things we talked about, like feeding on God's Word and, and, and all of the spiritual disciplines that help my faith stay strong. Why, Paul? Because he says, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What does he mean by that? Does he mean he's not saved? No. No, we know from the Scripture he's not talking about standing before the great white throne of judgment in Revelation 20 where unbelievers will one day stand and then end up in hell for eternity. But rather he's talking about standing before the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 where he says if he doesn't run the race, all that he's done will be lost. He'll, he'll suffer great loss. He'll just make it in to heaven. A fearful picture. A call that calls you and me to persevere and live the Christian life and not allow the influence of this world to draw us away from our faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're asking as you hear all this, are there cases of this in Scripture? Well, well yes, there are. We 
We would only need this morning, if we had time, to turn to 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 through 20, where, where Paul is encouraging Pastor Timothy to persevere in his life for Christ and in the faith. He says, fight the good fight. Hold on to faith and, and, and that good conscience. And then he says, some have rejected these and they've shipwrecked their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who he says, I've handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. These guys had faith. They walked away from it. They shipwrecked their faith. And he says they've been turned over to Satan to experience whatever Satan is going to do to them in this life before they die. Terrible, terrible consequences. And I don't know what all of that implies. But it seems like pretty severe judgment and it's a judgment I would never want to experience. And then a little bit later in 2 Timothy, near the end of his life, Paul is, is awaiting the executioner who is going to come and take off his head because he has lived for Jesus Christ and for faith in God. And it won't be long before Paul literally loses his head. And in the midst of the loneliness of that prison, he says in 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 10, Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. He's gone to Thessalonica. And I don't know what Demas was doing in Thessalonica, but obviously he turned his back on living for God. And then there's Alexander again, as Paul says about him. Alexander, the metal worker, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And I take it from Hebrews chapter 6 and what we've learned this morning that if he's gone too far, God will leave him in that state and he won't be able to repent. And for some sovereign reason, Paul says to Timothy and to you and to me today, I warn you. I warn you. It's the same warning that he offers in 1 Corinthians 10 when he says, take heed lest you fall. Take heed lest you fall. It's the same warning he gives us in 1 Corinthians 11 when he says, examine your life. Make sure you don't step away from God, but continue to follow him. Examine your life and repent when you see that there's sin. Forgive me this morning if the illustration I'm going to use now is too delicate. But medically speaking, you and I are told by our doctors, aren't we, to examine certain areas of our body that have a potential for carrying cancer in them. And in the most private of times in our life, we are instructed by our doctors to carry out a self-examination. God's Word is saying to you and to me today who are part of the body of Christ that, that spiritually you and I need to be examining ourselves in ways that no one else can. Why? Because you and I know more about us than anyone else. We know our hidden thoughts. We know the actions we do. We know what happens at times in the secret places of our lives. Others don't, but we do. And God does. 
And that is why the scripture calls upon you and me as God's people to regularly repent. That is why the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 11 before we come to the table of the Lord on communion Sundays and take the bread and drink the cup that we examine ourselves lest we be judged by God. I don't know about you, but as I think about these texts, I know in my own life when when I begin to flirt with the peril of falling away or I begin to flirt with sin and I turn to these passages, the idea of God's temporal judgment here in this life and experiencing the judgment of God on my life at the judgment seat of Christ is one that causes me to turn back to the Lord. And so I ask you, as I ask myself often, David, are you dancing up to the line? And are you at times crossing over the line into thoughts and behaviors that are not godly? Are you and I at times teetering on the fence and flirting with carnality? Are there things that we supposedly do in the name of God that that we're really doing so that the world can look at us and see how good we are? And we do them out of pride rather than for truly the glory of God? If so, the word of God today in Hebrews chapter 6 says we're playing with fire. Maybe today there is in this worship center an Alexander or a Demas. And God is saying, don't go too far. Turn around, get a hold of your life. Come back to me as your Savior and lay your life before me and confess your sin to me and receive my grace again. Won't you come home to me like the prodigal son came home in Luke 15? If not, God's word says that the judgment will be severe. You've heard this, maybe you're wrestling with things and you, and you need some help to deal with the, some of the things in your life you're wrestling with. I want to say there are people here in the life of this church who can help you work through some of that. We've got counselors available to you now here in the life of the church. This is a sobering and serious passage of Scripture. And, and I'm not trying to play on anyone's emotions this morning, but I want to say to you this morning, if you are wrestling with sin and you are walking up a, and you are even crossing that line, The Spirit of God is saying, stop, turn around, repent, don't put it off. Because if we will do that, there are greater things for us in the future. And that's very briefly what the writer of Hebrews goes on to talk about in Hebrews chapter 6 verses 9 through 12 when when after giving this stern and this sobering warning and call to spiritual maturity and and warning us about the possible dangers that are irreversible of falling away, he turns to what we could call this morning the brighter side. And he says to his readers, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're confident of better things in your case. Things that accompany salvation. He says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love that you've shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We don't want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience 
inherit what has been promised. Isn't that great? I mean, look at it. Following the strongest blast in the book of Hebrews comes the grandest statement of affirmation, perhaps in the latter half of the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews says, I validate you, I affirm you. He understands, you see, what Gerda, the German writer, uh, once said, that correction does much, but encouragement does more. And so he turns from this stern warning in verse 9 to, with tenderness, say to them, dear friends, beloved, you whom we love. Isn't that marvelous? Isn't that needed? And he says, we love you. And we are convinced of better things for you. And, and what is it that would convince him to have such assurance? It's because they have been people who, who've gone deeper in Christ. They have been people who have gone deeper in their relationship with God and grown more and more deeply in love with the Lord. And out of the overflow of that, they then minister to others with the love of Jesus Christ. And they minister to their communities by going further in mission. And he says, I've seen it. I've seen it. And that's what gives him such reason for, for confidence. It's, it's their attitudes and their love for Jesus and the work that flows out of it. He, he is saying to them, I've seen you persevere against the assaults of Nero on you and your lives and, and, and on your Christian faith. And I've seen you because of your faith living in abject poverty without sufficient food. And yet in the midst of it, you held all things together in common and you cared for one another. I've seen it. And then he goes on in verses 11 and 12 to exhort them to continue to live that way right up until the very end. And people of God, that is God's word for you and for me today. If there is something in our lives that is sinful and we're not dealing with it, God is saying, take heed lest you fall. And he's saying, keep going. Keep going deeper in your relationship with me and further in mission. Keep going so that one day you can hear those words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter now into your rest. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your word today that speaks truth into our lives, truth that we all need to hear as we live life in a world that Satan would seek to use to draw us away from our walk with you and our love for you. And so, Jesus, we pray that as we go from this place to live the life you have called us to live, that through your power, the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak into our hearts and lives in those moments when, when we give in to temptation, that like the prodigal, you would call us home to you. And that like the prodigal, we would come. We would come back to you, our Father, to repent of our sin and experience your grace anew. And Jesus, as we walk through this life, we pray that you would keep us near the cross. That as we walk through life, persevering in our faith, being in your word, being in prayer, being with your people here in this place and in our life groups, 
that you would use others around us to encourage one another to keep, keep running the race, keep fighting the good fight so that as we stay near the cross, we can know that on that day when we meet you face to face, there'll be great rewards instead of loss. There'll be those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter now into your heavenly rest.